Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. You can follow along above me. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as a king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then the Lord consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them. I'm sorry, then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Eliab and said, and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, Send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, Anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully down on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Charlie. <clears throat> this year, we are going to embark on a year-long journey following the footsteps of one of the Bible's most famous figures, King David. And when you think of David and consider all that happens in his life, a few things come to mind for me. First, life rarely goes the way we want or expect. David's life is filled with ups and downs, triumphs and tragedies, his life is proof that we live in a broken and fallen world. Life is hard. At the same time, when I think of David, I'm reminded of what fearless faith looks like. I'm reminded of what it looks like to trust God even when you can't trace him, to obey God even when you cannot see him. At the same time, David also reminds us that no one is immune to the effects 
of sin and temptation. David was deeply flawed. No one is impervious to the weakness of the flesh. Lastly, when I think of David, I cannot help but think of Jesus. No one in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus more, foreshadows Jesus more, prefigures Jesus more than David. It's not coincidence that the very first verse of Matthew's gospel opens up with identifying Jesus as the son of David. It's not coincidence that the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews opens up by identifying Jesus as a descendant of David. And so there's all these threads that connect Jesus to David. And so throughout this series, we're going to be looking at David and then pointing forward at Jesus over and over again. With all that in mind... I'm excited for this sermon series because it's my prayer and hope that as we study David, this series will equip us and compel us to follow God in a fallen world. Now, before we dive into our passage, let me give you a brief intro of the book of 1 Samuel as a whole, just so that you could have some context as to what's going on here in chapter 16. When you think of 1 Samuel, what it's about is primarily Israel's search for a king. 1 Samuel is all about Israel's search for a king. The book opens up with Israel currently being ruled and led by judges. And then Hannah, a barren wife, asks God for a child. And and the Lord answers her prayer. She conceives. And in her prayer of thanksgiving, she mentions rulers to come and lead God's people. And she gives birth to Samuel a prophet of God whose mission in life is to oversee the transition from the era of judges to the era of kings, from a confederacy of tribes to the monarchy. And so you could say that Samuel's purpose is to identify, raise up, train and establish a king over Israel. And in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, uh, he, he identifies and sees Saul. He's impressed with Saul's stature, his height. He's impressive. Immediately he says, he must be Israel's king. But in the previous chapter, we discover that as impressive and gifted as Saul was, he was more interested in his own glory than that of God's. He lacked the spiritual qualifications necessary to lead God's people. He feared man more than the Lord. And so God rejects Saul as king, and he communicates that to Samuel. And it's only a matter of time now before Saul is replaced 
by another. And this is where our passage picks up in chapter 16. It begins with mourning. Samuel mourns over Saul's rejection. His entire life was dedicated to raising Saul. He was for sure certain that Saul was the promised king. He poured himself into Saul. Saul was like a son to him, but now he's heartbroken. God's rejection of Saul is like God's rejection over Samuel, and he feels like a failure. I think many of us can relate to Samuel, can't we? Many of us here have grieved the loss of broken dreams. Perhaps you've spent years investing in a business that ended up bankrupt. Perhaps you spent years investing in a marriage that ended up in divorce. Perhaps you spent years studying for tests but got rejected from your schools. Perhaps you spent years pursuing a career that ended up being unsatisfying. Perhaps you spent years investing in a child, but now you're no longer on speaking terms. Whatever the case may be, all of us, in one way or another, will experience heartbreaking disappointment. And this is where we find Samuel. And it's into his grief and loss that God speaks in verse 1. God says, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. God reminds Samuel, I know you're devastated, but I am not done with you. There is more I have planned for you. There is more I want to accomplish Through you, look up, I am here. Now, I don't want you to mistake God in thinking that he's rebuking Samuel for grieving. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shall not mourn. After all, you have an entire book called Lamentations. You look at Jesus, and he weeps on a number of occasions in different places for different reasons. Being godly does not mean that you are unfazed by life's sorrows and you just endure life unemotionally. No, God is an emotional God. And so if you want to be godly, if you want to be God-like, then you need to learn how to embrace your emotions and express them. Having said that, as humans, we are more than just our emotions, right? Our emotions ought not to drive the bus of our lives. And that's what we see here with Samuel. His grief was so overwhelming. It's all that he could see at this moment. It blacked out everything in his life, including the Lord. 
And so God intervenes, Samuel, how long will you grieve? Don't forget me. I am here with you. And so this touches on the main theme of our passage. And that is this. What we see with our eyes is not all that there is. What we see with our eyes is not all that there is. Samuel could only see failure and disappointment. That's all he saw, but God reminds him, there's more than what you see and feel right now. I'm not done with you. But let's move on. In verse 2, Samuel balks at God's command. He responds with fear. You want me to go to Bethlehem and anoint a new king while Saul is still on the throne? He's going to see that as an act of treason. Again, in this moment, all that Samuel can see is Saul's strength and sword. What he doesn't see is God's sovereign protection. When God tells you to do something, surely he's going to enable you to do that. But he doesn't see God. He only sees Saul. And so God could have easily at this moment said, Are you serious, Samuel? You're more afraid of Saul than you are of me? I'm going to protect you. But that isn't how God responds. He doesn't shame Saul. He doesn't rebuke him. Instead, we see God stooping down and meeting Samuel where he is. Samuel, you don't need to worry about Saul. I'm going to send you on a mission to offer a sacrifice. No one will suspect that you're also there to anoint the new king. What God does with Samuel here is similar to what a father might do for his terrified toddler who can't fall asleep because he's afraid of the dark. When a a toddler wakes up in the middle of the night, scared, screaming and crying, a father can come in and take the following approach. What's wrong with you? There's nothing to be scared of. See? Nothing under your bed, nothing in the closet. It's all in your mind. You need to start thinking. Stop being afraid. That's one way. I don't recommend that way. Another way is to give his child a teddy bear. When you're scared, I want you to squeeze and hold on to this bear. Another way might be to install a nightlight to assuage the fear of the child. And that's what we see God doing here with Samuel. He gently stoops down and says, Okay, Samuel, here's another way to address your fear. Now, if Samuel was afraid to travel to Bethlehem, then the elders were more afraid of meeting Samuel. In verse 4, they meet Samuel at the gates and say, Do you come in peace? We might think that's odd, but you need to remember Samuel is no ordinary person. 
He is the prophet of God, and when you read about the prophets, they bring both blessing, but they also can bring judgment. I mean, imagine if I were to call one of you guys in the middle of the week and said, hey, you know what? I'd like to visit your family. Are you available this week? What's going to be your immediate response? Uh Uh-oh, what did we do, right? And so that's what uh, the elders of Bethlehem, they, they fear that they've done something wrong. And so Samuel assures them, no, I'm not here to bring judgment. I'm here to offer a sacrifice. And while waiting for the sacrifice to, pre- to be prepared, we have now the selection process. Samuel meets Jesse, and Jesse introduces him to his sons. The first son he meets is Eliab. And Samuel immediately gets to his feet. Surely, Eliab is the future king. Just look at him. He's the firstborn. He's tall. He's impressive. He's perfect. And yet God reminds Samuel, Samuel, what you see with your eyes is not all that there is. He says to him in verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Now what makes Samuel's response surprising is that we've seen this before. When Saul first came on the scene, Samuel got excited for the same reasons. In 1 Samuel 10, 23 through 24, it reads, When he stood among the people, this is Saul, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. And so you would think that Samuel would learn his lesson since Saul ended up being a failure. But no, Samuel is still infatuated with height. He still associates kingship with being tall. Why is that? Well, I don't think it's unique to Israel. I think the same bias continues today. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Blink, writes that in the U.S., only 14% of all men are six foot or taller. 14%. And so if you're six foot or taller, you're part of that 14%. But can you guess what percentage of all the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are taller than six feet? 58%. In all general population, 58% of CEOs. And I think the same can be seen amongst pastors. When I go to pastors' meetings, I'm like, wow, everyone is tall. Now, this is my way of thanking you guys for bucking the trend. Right? <laughs> Yet I believe there's more to Samuel's bias than simply an affinity for tall people. I think their infatuation with height also stems from their conception of a king. You see, you and I, when we think of a king, we think a king's primary responsibility 
is to lead, govern, and rule. We think of an older man, if not an old man, sitting on a throne, giving directives to his inferiors in order to carry them out throughout the kingdom. Perhaps we think of someone like the U.S. president and how he rules. But in biblical times, especially in Samuel's day, when they thought of a king, they thought of a warrior. A king existed to protect his people and fight for his people. We see this in 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, where the people of Israel shout, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Now do you see why David and Goliath episode prepares David for kingship? For Israel, kings fought on the front lines. Now do you see why they want someone tall and big? When you're engaged in hand-to-hand battles, size and strength are important. And so when Israel thought of a king, they pictured someone who looked more like the rock rather than Kevin Hart. They pictured someone who looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, not Rob Schneider, right? And this is why they chose Saul, and this is why Samuel is ready to choose Eliab. But to his surprise, God says no. And so Jesse trots out the rest of his seven sons, and each time he brings out a son, Samuel says no. And what we have is the Bible's uh, version of Cinderella, Jesus bring, uh, Jesse brings out seven sons, and yet none fit the glass slipper. And so Samuel asks, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse answers, well, there is actually one more. He's the youngest, and he's tending the sheep. Now, in the Bible, how people are introduced is usually significant. And when you see the ascriptions, youngest, tending the sheep, That's not very impressive. First of all, the Hebrew word for youngest also has the connotation of being the smallest or the tiniest. Not only that, but later on, the author says that David had, quote, beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Now, you might think this is the author's way of complimenting David for his good looks, But commentators pick up the fact that these ascriptions are usually used to describe young boys. I mean, imagine if after teaching Sunday school, I went up to one of you and said, you know what, your five-year-old is adorable. He is so cute. Nothing wrong with that. But imagine if I went up to Pastor Lewis and said, you know, you're adorable. (laughs) You're so cute. Inappropriate, right? Adorable, cute. Those are characteristics of someone young, not someone fully grown. In the same way, beautiful eyes, handsome in appearance, those are ascriptions used to describe young boys. 
And so the point the author is trying to make is David looked nothing like the idealized version of a warrior. And let's also not lose the side of the fact that David is tending the sheep. I want you to know that back then, shepherding was looked down upon. And now this might sound confusing for some of you, especially those of you who are well-read, because you know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were renowned shepherds. It was a lucrative career. It was a noble one. They had positive reputations. And so you might think, well, how is shepherding now something looked down upon? Well, you see, a lot of time passed between the age of the patriarchs and now the age of the kings. What happened in between? Egypt. You see, during the 400 years of life in Egypt, Israel saw for the first time what an agricultural economy looked like. It was introduced to farming. And they realized that living as a farmer was a far more stable way to live than going around leading flocks of sheep. Not only that, but the Egyptians despised shepherds and sheep herders. Why? Because their sheep would encroach on their farmland and eat their crops. And so they began to institute laws to say, shepherds, if you want to graze, you need to graze outside the boundaries of the city. And so there was a lot of animosity built up over the years. And soon enough, those who were wealthy those who were educated would grow up being farmers, whereas those who were less wealthy, less educated, they would do the work of sheep herding. And this bias over the years infected the Israelites, and that's why now they look down on shepherds. Again, David is the last person anyone suspected to be Israel's king. Thankfully, what we see is not all that there is. While humans look at the visible, God looks at the invisible. David is chosen, anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon him. Now, you might notice that David doesn't immediately become king. He doesn't become king until 2 Samuel. And so what we have here is the private anointing of God. Later on, we'll have the public commendation of the people. Now that we have a good grasp of what happens in this chapter, what are the takeaways? Well, I've got three quick applications for you. First, our passage teaches us that when it comes to God, he continues to draw near to those we least expect. In the world's eyes, in Samuel and Jesse's eyes, David was the unlikely choice. And yet over and over again in the Bible, 
God draws near to those who we least expect. He continues to choose the younger over the older, the shorter over the taller, the immigrant over the citizen, the slave over the king. God's preference for the down and out, the marginalized and the overlooked and discarded is a thread that can be traced throughout the Bible. And this is made all the more clear when Jesus comes into this world. We see who Jesus is drawn to, and we see who is repelled by Jesus. He makes this principle even more clear in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. And so if you are feeling hopeless this morning, I have great news for you. God draws near to you. If you're feeling lonely and isolated this morning, I have good news for you. God draws near to you. Whether you're struggling with depression, grief, and loss, whether you're struggling with an eating disorder, crippled by anxiety, however you might be feeling this morning, God draws near to the lowly in heart. Though the world may not notice you, though perhaps your own family might not see you, God does. Second, God warns us from prioritizing our outward appearance over against our inward souls. David Brooks writes extensively about this. He says that in society, he notices two sets of virtues. There's on one hand, resume virtues, and on the other, eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the skills and qualifications that the marketplace love to see. They are those virtues and accomplishments you list on your resume, what school you graduated from, what degrees you possess, what previous job titles you've held, what companies you used to work for. The world is impressed by resume virtues. Eulogy virtues, however, are those virtues that are talked about at your funeral. How selfless you are, how generous that person was, how caring and thoughtful, how sacrificial, how loving. We all know that eulogy virtues, that character, is far more important than our skills and achievements. We all know that our ability to impact people is tied to the state of our hearts, our generosity, our empathy, our ability to reconcile and forgive. 
And yet, how much time do you and I spend building up our resumes rather than our souls? How many hours do we pour ourselves into making our outside stand tall and grand while neglecting the state of our hearts? We are like mansions sitting on a mud hill that's waiting to collapse. Our priorities are reflected in our parenting. We drive all over Orange County to make sure our kids learn new skills, to make sure they play basketball and baseball at the highest level, to make sure they advance in their extracurricular activities. We'll hire tutors, enroll them in SAT classes to make sure they get into the best schools. We'll get upset with them when they don't perform on the level we want them to perform, but how much time do we invest in their character? How much do we pray that they would become compassionate, empathetic, kind? We've got our priorities upside down. Unfortunately, we live in a county that is obsessed with outward appearance, that is obsessed with physical beauty, material possessions, nice clothes, and nice cars. But do you know why I think we're so obsessed with the external? It's because it's so much easier to make your outside look good than your inside. It's so much easier to make yourself prettier than to make your heart pure. It's so much easier to feel good by buying a new outfit than it is to humble yourself before God and spend time with Him. Perhaps the reason why we focus our attention on the external is because when we look at the internal, we don't like what we see. I'd say, Jeff, I tried praying this past week for the first 10 minutes of my prayer. I realized I don't like to pray. My mind wouldn't stay still. I began to start feeling a lot of shame. What's wrong with me? Why can't I pray to God? And I just started feeling worse about myself. And so, you know what? I don't think prayer is for me. It's scary to look inside. It's scary to look inside and just see how messy it is, how dilapidated the structures of your soul are. It's far easier to just focus on the outside. But thankfully, Though we are a mess on the inside, our passage points to Jesus, and this is the third application. Here in 1 Samuel 16, we are pointed to Christ. Just as David is God's unlikely choice, 
so too no one ever expected that Jesus was God's Messiah. Jesus was a son of a carpenter. He grew up in a no-name town called Nazareth. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it writes, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah is pretty much telling us that Jesus was not very good looking. He was unimpressive. It did not catch anyone's attention. And just as David would be anointed with oil and empowered by the Holy Spirit, so too Jesus would have his own anointing ceremony. In the river Jordan, he would be baptized by John, and the heavens would open up, and God publicly declared, this is the one, he is my chosen one. Listen to him. And immediately after, what happens? The Holy Spirit, like a dove, falls upon Jesus, just like the Spirit fell upon David. The statement that God looks at the heart might be terrifying for you and me. God, please don't look at my heart. But praise God that Jesus came to this world not to show us how to clean our hearts, but he came into this world to make our hearts clean, forgive us and redeem us. And so, may we turn to the only one who could wash us and make us as white as snow. May we bring our filthy, messy hearts to our Lord and ask him to forgive us, redeem us, and transform us. And may we, as God's children, pursue and pursue the things that are eternal and cultivate those things that are invisible so that we might look more and more like our king. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God that sees so much more than what we see. And we confess that our sight is so narrow and nearsighted. And Lord, for those of us here who may be fixated on only what we see, would you open up our vision to help us to see what you see? And Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross for us, to suffer for us, so that we might be white as snow. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would purify our hearts and help us, O oh Lord, to bear more and more the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name.